Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Marketing News Canada. Uh, my name is Daryl, and I'm very, very happy to be here with Steve Mossop uh, today. Hi, Steve. Hi, Daryl. Um, great to meet you. Steve is an accomplished speaker and media personality and has been publicly speaking for over 20 years on a variety of social, economic, consumer and political trends in front of audiences all over North America. Steve has publicly released thousands of opinion polls. Uh, on everything from politics to economic confidence, support or opposition to various environmental, societal, and economic policy issues, consumer trends, social media habits, healthcare issues, COVID-19's impact, and more recently, AI trends. He has correctly predicted the outcomes over 25 elections over his career. Currently, he is EVP of Leger Western Canada and leads a team of 25 researchers in BC, serving public and private sector clients with full-service market research solutions Nice to meet you officially. What a bio. Um, we're excited to have you today. Daryl, I'm super happy to be here too and share some stories and uh, hopefully your readers and, and listeners find it uh, interesting. Amazing. So let's get let's get right into it in terms of your origin story. How did you get to where you are now? That's quite the bio. Uh, quite a lot of polls conducted. How, how did you get to where you are today? How did you figure out this was the direction you wanted to go in and, and how did you get this interest? So Tell us your origin uh, story. It's a rarity, I think, in the profession, for any profession these days. I started this profession in high school, in my grade 12 year. I was working for a company called TNS at the time. It was called Canadian Facts. And I was working in the back room of a mail room in the day where we used to send out products to consumers and have people knock on their doors and actually do interviews. No way. So the topic was in the Coca-Cola Wars. And this is like one of the biggest marketing mm -hmm. failures of all time, as you probably know, and most of your listeners know, is when Coke decided to change the formulation of their product, they had hired this company to do these uh, surveys where we sent basically mm -hmm. different cola varieties door to door across Canada and people taste tested them over a period of a week. And then we would go and knock on the door and get their opinions about which oh, tasted yeah. better. And so... You know, this all wrapped up, and so the course of the summer, I'm sending out all these shipments uh, time after time, and at the end of the day, you know, the client got the answer to the question, which was, you know, this version A tastes better than version B, and I'm sure at the time uh, the executives were pretty smug and thinking we did a great job, we answered this question, and what occurred to me in that entire lesson is they were asking the wrong question because you know that the outcome of this was the new Coke was introduced, there was protest, there was letters, there was people actually uh, protesting in person against Coca-Cola mm -hmm. and they rescinded it and they had to go back to the old version and then in subsequent years they re-released new versions but they kept the old. But it's a marketing lesson of all time that you, know, you oh, have yeah. to ask the right question. And the question was asked like which version is better and it, it's really nothing to do with taste. It's about brand and how you feel and what it does for you. So it was an early lesson that really tweaked my interest in the profession that you have to ask the right question. And that's kept me interested ever since. 
I, I mean, what a place to start. That's such a monumental marketing campaign. And, and for me growing up, I remember that quite clearly. Um, well, take us to the next steps post post um, high school there. How did you how did you get to where you are today in terms of your career? Um, what were some of the, the key, I guess, the key steps that took you here? And, and how did the, those advance your interest? Well, I started my career uh, at TNS, worked there for several years, and then worked for Angus Reed for uh, several years after that. Um, and that transformed itself into Ipsos that bought Angus Reed. I spent 17 years developing my profession mm-hmm. there. And I really had a passion, I think, for anything that's public opinion related. So anything the news about how people feel or what people feel and uh, election outcomes and, and the science of how do pollsters predict election outcomes, I found that really fascinating. And I think for people like me is that the profession also short, uh, it attracts people with short attention spans because the lifestyle of a project or the lifespan of a project, I should say, is, you know, two or three months and then you move on to mm-hmm. the next topic. And, and with public opinion polling, you're constantly learning. So, you know, you're finding out random stuff mm. about what people think all the time on, on topics that are just so diverse. I remember, for example, one time about 10 years ago, we were looking at uh, how afraid people are of bed bugs. So it's, it's a pretty obscure topic. You never really think about it. And we found out that that's one of the biggest fears that people have mm. is the fear of, uh, you know, an infestation of bed bugs that you catch, you know, traveling through hotels. And I can tell you there are hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of examples oh, of super obscure topics that just make you go, I wonder how many people think X. And, and I'll give you another example. You know, many years ago, a person very close to me, and he was this older gentleman who um, who really felt that lotteries were rigged. And he thought, mm-hmm. if I can pick the if I can pick the right numbers through this method of figuring out how they actually do this through whatever conspiracy minded way, and predict those numbers, I can win. And you know, being a statistician, I would talk about random sampling and the importance of that. Uh, but he insisted that it was rigged, and so I said, I'm going to do a poll on that. So I did. This is about 15 years back or 18 years back. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that 21% of the Canadian population at the time felt that lotteries were rigged. <laughs> and I ran into an, another, it, there was an employee way back, sort of part B of my story. And she really questioned whether dinosaurs existed. Mm. <laughs> and so I said, I'm going to do a poll on that. Mm. We found out at the time that 4% of Canadians question whether dinosaurs actually existed. So 4% sounds like a small number, but times 40 million, that's a pretty massive number of people. So I've always been fascinated with what people think. And more recently, just the conspiracy-minded theories that people have and the growth of those over the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And really since COVID, it's it's exploded exponentially with social media. And the belief systems that people have, I find absolutely incredible that people believe the things that they do, like the percentage of people who believe in, uh, you know, chemtrails, for example, you'd never Mm -hmm. expect that, you know, 15% of Canadians believe that conspiracy theory. So Mm -hmm. I find that fascinating. And that's really been my path is being passionate about public opinion topics that actually, not just for interest sake, but actually have, have impacts on governments, on policymakers, on product makers, or in your background, Daryl, marketers, how, mm-hmm. how do consumers get moved by the actions of marketers, whether it's a product or an advertising mm-hmm. feature? That's my fascination. That's kept me glued to this industry for 35 plus years. 
I mean, that's that's fascinating stuff. I often joke with my friends, like I, you know, when 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 I kick the bucket, I want to be able to look at a lifetime stats of different things that that <laughs> that I did or I achieved. And I think polling, I mean, with today's technology and how how online and, and early on people are on social media, you could probably see those stats by the, you know, given given the well, next couple it's of decades. Turned into uh, a funny party trick, Daryl is. Uh... People ask me what percentage of the population, and then you know they'll come up with whatever statement, believe something, do something, and I could usually predict it within a couple of points. Like what percentage of people do X behavior, and I could take a pretty educated guess. But it, it, that's kept me glued to the industry over over time, and it's it provides valuable services to clients, to governments. Absolutely, so I, I find it fascinating. And then to talk about those things in a public setting really uh, is something I'm pretty passionate about. Well, let's 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 pull back the curtain a little bit and, and educate people like myself who don't know how polling is conducted. But um, now, I guess it's changed a lot over the years with technology and software and social media. But you know, and you said you literally would go door to door when you first started and ask people for their opinion. But now, how do you conduct your polling? And what's you know, I, I guess it's that's a big question. But if you were to summarize it in a nutshell, how do you conduct uh, your polling? How do you like to conduct your polling to ensure? Um, the, that you're getting the right information from the right groups of people. Well, it's a, it's a tricky uh, science and there is a science to it, but it really stems from the principles of uh, randomness and, and statistics. You know, anybody who's taken a psych 101 class, anybody who's a, a, in those social psychology uh, professions to the science professions, experimentation and random sampling all are kind of understood at a high level by most people who have been at least to a post-secondary uh, education. So we start with that. And in the old days, we used to do door to door, you know, before they mm -hmm. mentioned the telephone, that was the start of opinion polling in the States where they started to predict elections mm -hmm. based on door to door interviewing and that migrated to telephone, which then migrated to uh, panels, you know, those are the three broad areas. So right now we do, we have a panel of 450,000 Canadians that join wow. via email and, and through their phone number and an app. So uh, about half of those download an app to their, their smartphone. And they finish their polls by invite uh, to those polls. And then we do all kinds of balancing to make sure that it's statistically representative of age and gender and income and any other statistical variation. And that gives us the ability, if you do that formula right, we have this amazing track record at Leger of being the most accurate pollster in the country for the last 12 elections. And, you know, we always tell the statistics that we're right uh, within plus or minus 3% 19 times out of 20. And I guess maybe by the 20th election, we might miss one because we, you know, statistically that might happen. But to be accurate for 12 in a row like that was really something that attracted me. And ultimately, that's yeah. why I had sold my company to Leger is their, their track record in this in this area. And it reinforced that the process of collect, conducting those polls indeed worked and were accurate. Yeah, because that's that, really the litmus test, isn't it? Because if you think yes. you as a marketer over over years, if you talk to a pollster that has that ability to predict election outcomes, then certainly we can predict how consumers are going to behave, market share, public opinion about where people sit on different social societal topic areas. It is it is the the catch all that kind of validates our existence, if you will. Yeah, definitely. Now, this is a this is a question for me, just out of my curiosity. Um, you've conducted thousands uh, of polls over the years. Do you have a pet peeve within what you do? And when you do that process, you're like, ah, oh, I got to do this again. But it becomes part of it. Do you have a pet peeve in your industry? I always like asking that. The pet peeve might be, 
you know, when we do a controversial poll, mm-hmm. and that could be a, a range of things, especially in the early, not the early days, but the mid to later days of COVID brought out a lot of uh, naysayers, conspiracy theorists. And I would get nasty emails saying, well, you, how could you know, how could you only talk to a thousand people and, and mm-hmm. trust the result? You didn't talk to me. And I feel this way. <laughs> and that's maybe my pet peeve is that basic misunderstanding. And as I said, most people who have gone to a post-secondary education know that this, the, the probabilities sampling and statistics around that are, are really rock-solid sciences. And yet uh, a significant number of Canadians don't even know about that and use it against us to say, well, how could you possibly know you didn't yeah. talk to the right people? Because I don't believe yeah. that, so therefore it's invalid. So that's maybe a pet peeve. Uh, of the industry that makes a lot of sense um and sounds quite relatable for anyone who who's gotten feedback from a non-expert within their field i get that um another question based on your time in the industry here uh, i want to know if you've if you've and i'm kind of suspecting one of your answers here but what are some major watershed moments i guess with technology that has affected the way you conduct your polls over the years and or or the results of your polls um yeah, well, you must there, have seen some pretty big moments. There yeah. are, a big moment was back in uh, 1994. It was my first day starting the Angus Reed Group. And mm-hmm. Angus Reed himself, yes, he's a real person. He, <laughs> uh, he was my mentor for several years, quite a few years. And he came into my office and he said, you've got to see this, you've got to see this. And it was the introduction of the corporate email system that had just you know, recently been you know, technologically available and then introduced to the company, you can actually email people from your desk to another person, whether it's a client or a colleague and get an answer, you know, virtually instantaneously. Mm. We thought that was, that was a pretty big moment. And you think that's, you know, 30 something years ago, that is still the primary method of business communication is email. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a watershed moment. Mm -hmm. And there hasn't really been a, a, a big one since then. There's been several small things, you know, the advance of, uh, social media and the impact on our industry mm-hmm. is is quite significant. When I say significant for us, it's, uh, you know, it's how people spend their time, how they consume their news, how they get their, uh, you know, the things that they learn about in education. So the advance of, of all social media through the last 10 years has been pretty significant. And then, of course, AI in the past six months has just been the biggest one so far and the quickest one. You know, I've, I've done several talks on this. And, you know, you come across stats that show the number of chat GPT users that happened in the first uh, 60 days, you know, several million, I think it was staggering seven or 10 million people. And that doesn't count the people that couldn't get in because of the lineups and the, and the, you know, the backlogs, but Mm -hmm. that moment I, I knew, and our CEO, John Mark really emphasized it. It was this year coming back from Christmas holidays. And he was quite excited. He said to the management team, have you heard of ChatGPT? And out of 22 people, there was only four of us that had put up our hand. And, hmm. you know, this is a, a group, a leadership group, but it had just been introduced, you know, a couple of weeks earlier during, during the Christmas break. And that is a watershed moment that I'm sure I'll look back, yeah. not in 10 years, but in, you know, two years and say that was the moment where everything changed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Well, that's a great segue to my my next round of questions. Is all about AI and market trends. Um, it is. It is. You know, it's exciting. It's scary. I feel like I, I exited the marketing industry at least as a as an agency owner at a time where I was able to kind of like, okay, well, you guys figure it out now. I'm gonna just gonna read the reports on it and figure out how to use it on my own without implementing it throughout my entire agency. So, I guess what are some of the most exciting parts of AI when it comes to market research for yourself personally? AI in market research, uh, yeah, it's going to transform our industry, but it's not quite as exciting, I think, as the more public domain. So let me address both of those. In the market Please. research industry, yes, it's going to save us time. It's going to make us more efficient. It's going to help us produce reports faster and more visual. It's going to automate some processes, save time, money. Not not too exciting from a layperson's perspective, but it is significant within our industry. But the public, in the public domain, what is really quite again, scary and fascinating is the impact that it's going to have on all things visual. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. we're starting to see little clips of movies that are generated by AI. There's the, there's the writer's strike in Hollywood. That is really that one of the foundations of the disagreement is what is, uh, what are we going to do with AI? What are our mm -hmm. rights as actors and in our name and our face and what we do with our on screen, uh, time and so i think those are the areas so music and visuals uh and this relates to advertising and marketing is is the advances of ai that are going to transform how things are done and what we see mm -hmm. and then the scary part so we did a poll and it was in early february just asking canadians what do they feel about ai and how have they heard of it or are they used to it and it was about 20 percent who had you know, we're somewhat to very familiar with AI and what it's doing in the world around them. So not not a terrible number. It's, you know, it's advancing very quickly. But the most shocking stat was this. We asked people, is AI good for society or bad for society? And in that first initial poll, if I remember the number right, it was about, uh, it was a, a balance of about half and half who felt it was good and bad. In three short months, so we re-polled, uh, I think it was the middle of May, and we saw a 15 point drop in the number of people who felt that it was going to be good for society. And, and conversely, it, it launched over 50% who said ultimately AI is bad for society. And as a, as a sociologist and a, and a market researcher, that's an alarming trend to see something that's recently introduced and all of a sudden you've got this backlash, this immediate backlash. And that to me um, says, you know, in the future, we're going to have some implications from that. We're going to have people disconnecting. We're going to have a rebellion against uh, some of the things that AI is doing. Um, but the flip side of that is, I think it's, I, I personally, I think it's a very exciting time. I think I really mm -hmm. uh, am an optimist. And I think that it's going to transform the world in, in positive ways that we haven't even begun to think of. And yes, there is some negative, but those, those will take care of itself. And I really feel it's going to, we'll look back and two years or three years and say, wow, look what it can do, as opposed to, oh, no, look what it did. Mm -hmm. It's going to bring about a ton of change. And you, you took the next question right out of my mouth, which is what's the scariest thing you've seen about AI. So um, that that makes a lot of sense. What really sticks out to me is that that updated the 15 point drop so quickly. You'd, you'd, have you ever seen anything like that before in terms of uh, conducting a poll following up to see that big of a change? No, public opinion changes very slowly. You don't get radical shifts. Mm -hmm. I think the last radical shift we saw was, you know, and they think in the early days of COVID, uh, people were very supportive of their governments. You know, we had approval ratings for John Horgan that were 70%. 
and for uh, Trudeau that were 65 or 68 percent, you never see public opinion uh, behind a, a leader in any jurisdiction with numbers that high. And then we saw this erosion and then the truckers, uh, mm -hmm. you know, protests began and we saw this immediate shift. You know, people who are super supportive all of a sudden uh, shifted their opinion and we found that 35% of Canadians supported the truckers movement, which was a radical change almost overnight, you know, within a 30-day period. So, yes, Daryl, it's rare that we see these massive shifts in a short period of time. And those are always alarming. You know, even public opinion on politicians tend to really go quite slowly. Yeah. And, or any other public debate on, on any social issue tend to move quite slowly. And this one, to, to see that kind of drop, it's, it's something we'll keep an eye on. Definitely. It, when, you, when you're talking through kind of what you what you your insights as you see something like this happen, it's so rare uh, in terms of public opinion switching, it makes me think of echo chambers. It makes me think of, you know, you know, I, you and I could both create like a strategy, a messaging strategy and pick the correct places to distribute that news so that if someone clicks on one thing, we know that they're going to be reinforced with stories, with news stories that are only relevant to that one topic to keep them within that quote unquote echo chamber. Uh, if if you're looking at why someone's public opinion would change so quickly, I mean, looking at the way they consume their information now and how easily it's controlled and how easily a marketer or a, a politician or someone could create a strategy that keeps them hearing the things they want to hear across a variety of issues, you could probably, I would assume, make some pretty accurate predictions about, you know, like you said, your party trick. Uh, you find out one thing about someone, you can already figure out what, what they're hearing, what they're seeing, and you can make predictions about other topics and other questions that they're going to ask. Well, you know, I mentioned my party trick, yes, but AI eventually, in, in quite short order, will probably do the same. So, for example, mm. you know, there's a possibility, and I've speculated with my colleagues and friends over this, is, you know, we do public opinion polls now, and we, we get the outcomes. We cross-tab it by multiple demographic and, and uh, socioeconomic behavior, and we, we get the answers. But if you could take every public opinion poll that's ever been done and throw it into AI, which is essentially the foundation of AI. Mm. And uh, you could imagine that there might be one day where you don't need to ask a public opinion poll. You might just say, Hey, AI, what do people think of X topic? How many people are going to support or oppose it two years from now? And you start to model that out. That's, that's maybe the scary, but fascinating part is could, would we ever get to the point where we don't need to ask people their opinions? You just have to ask the, this, <laughs> This, uh, this machine, <laughs> this machine, yeah. what public uh, opinion is. I, listen to this question, Steve. Like this is literally my next question, but you you just literally said it. But at a certain point, when enough information is fed to AI, do you see market research just being fully predicted because all behavior has been mapped and all individuals that have grown up past a certain period have been online, so that companies will just ask the AI and accept their little barometer of of error as acceptable risk. Um, because wow. <laughs> yeah, you, that like, is exactly it. And not a lot of people are talking about that. I think it's too scary for us as, as pollsters to think about that, but we do our own version of that now. So if you come to us and you have a marketing problem and you, you test an ad, for example, and say, how many people think are going to like this ad, we can mm -hmm. run the poll and it'll show you the demographic breakdowns and we can predict that. So, you know, we can already do that for the next ad and say, hey, people that if you produce an ad that has these features and these messages, these are the kind of people that like it. So we do a little bit of that right now with a little bit of art and a little bit of science. But yeah, with a, with a massive database of every opinion poll ever done, 
you can imagine that maybe you don't have to engage the services of a of a pollster to do that. I mean, that's yeah. that's far fetched and not very self serving, but it is an interesting concept. And 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 I think my big takeaway here is AI's ruined your party trick, or is on its on its way to ruining <laughs> your party trick. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, well, thanks for your insight on, on AI. I want to move to election polling because that's a big part of, of, of what you've worked on. And, and um, this is kind of where I find I, I feel a lot of my free time. I put on, you know, whatever is on my YouTube suggested list for for what's happening in, in, our, in our, to our southern neighbors here. But um, within election polling, accurate polling is so important. And um, I think I'd love to to have you tell me and our listeners here is is what 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 exactly does accurate polling mean when it pertains to election polling? There are so many facets to that, Daryl, but I'll I'll capture hopefully a few of them. One of them is it starts with again asking the right question, and I'll go back to an example of 2012 in British Columbia when Christy Clark had a last minute run and defied mm-hmm. all the pollsters. Every pollster, including myself, had predicted that uh, the, they would lose the election. Mm-hmm. And it, there was a switch last minute, and the switch was this. We did a, a poll, we call it an exit poll. So after people had tallied their, their vote, we found that 17% of voters had made the decision who to vote for in the previous 24 hours. Wow. And that does not <laughs> happen in most elections. So when we track election preferences right now, we find that, generally speaking, in an average election, that we might have 15% undecided. And in a boring election, it might go lower, it might go 10 or 8%. And so that undecided amount is really quite critical. And then within, within you know, the, the question of who would you vote for if an election were held tomorrow, mm-hmm. there's also a measure of a degree of certainty of who you're going to vote for. And back in that 2012 election, I think pollsters got a little bit lazy. They just went with what we typically call the horse race number, which is if an election were held tomorrow, who would you vote for? Without Mm -hmm. taking into account those other subtleties that exist in elections where either a last minute change existed or there's a certain demographic group that comes out of the woodwork that doesn't typically vote that changes outcomes. So asking the right questions is the first foundation. And that takes a lifetime of experience in in the polling industry to know because the issues change all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second part is sampling. So when we get to, you know, the, the idea that we have a, a panel and it happens to represent Canadians and how they think or feel, and it does a pretty good job of that. It's there's a lot of science behind that to actually get that panel in the first place. So how do you recruit it? How do you maintain it? How are people responding? What are the demographic shortfalls or regional shortfalls or political um, opinion shortfalls in that panel? Mm-hmm. So those are all issues that pollsters worry about and care about to make a quality panel. So it starts with yeah the the two foundations are asking the right questions and the second is having the right method of random sampling. And if you can nail those two, then you can uh, be in a fortunate position, position that we have been in, in predicting those elections pretty accurately. That's fascinating. The uh, if it, it, when you're looking at at polling within, I mean, things have changed so much over the last five years, even just in terms of of how people's opinions can sway because of viral or trending content or snippets. And I, I think you know something you said when, when we talked to AI and how it affect the general population is visually. I can I can see how that can be used um, by n- not just political parties, but um, really any anyone that wants to manipulate and utilize that information to show someone what they want to see. So I guess my question 
with regards to that is do you see any major threats to what you currently do in your position when it comes to election polling? Do you see people or groups or ways uh, that, that you're, you're being undermined? Um, or, or I guess what's something that's, that's kind of on your, on your watch list when it comes to the, the coming elections you know, over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, there, there are some uh, bombshells in the horizon and AI is one of them. So for example, uh, around the world, one of the major problems that pollsters have to deal with in, in mm-hmm. having people join and participate in opinion polls is dealing with fraud. So people may be motivated to sign up and get their rewards, collect their points, redeem mm-hmm. them and so on. So how do, you, how do you screen those people out? And there's methods to screen those people out, but with the advance of AI, they're getting more and more difficult. And that's a major threat to every global panel provider in the world actually is worried about this. And we're starting to see little instances, not little, but instances where there have been an influx of AI bots that will come in and kind of take over and it's getting mm. trickier to catch them. So that's a major, major threat. The, the second part to your point is these little micro movements that can suddenly spring up through social media and become very pronounced very quickly with certain demographic groups and they could change overnight. So the speed in which those trends and those conspiracies and uh, whatever else is, is trending on social media can impact voter intentions and voter behavior are becoming trickier and trickier because they happen faster mm. and they're, they're less um, predictable than what they have been in the past. And they're 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 crazier than in the past. So if you look at, you know, I mentioned conspiracy theories. They that's it, a it's an area of fascination for me because it it just never ends as to what people find that are conspiracy theory related. And if it starts to have an impact on election issues, you can see mm-hmm. very quickly that that can sway and change an election outcome. So on the horizon, I think it's going to become more and more difficult for for pollsters, but. You know, it hasn't stopped us before, so may, maybe we'll find solutions that that counter this. But it's definitely on our radar. Yeah, I, I think your I think your expertise is kind of needed more more than ever in the coming years to help um, realign how people are, are, are or how their intentions are, are demonstrated or collected and insights drawn from them. Um, and hopefully, we can play a role in figuring out what's real and what's not, because that exactly. is as AI in the future is demonstrated that to get to the truth is becoming harder and harder to do. Yeah. I, that what was that example of, of AI come with the, uh, I think I read a, an article about how a, uh, an AI, I think chat GPT or a lawyer used AI to essentially, uh, re- submit his entire case. Uh, and AI came up with completely false, legal precedents to justify its case to get to the, the I did truth hear that one yeah that was an interesting one and it's not but these are the early days of ai so that's going to get it's better the worst it's going to it's the worst it is now accurate. yeah absolutely well Stephen, i had a great chat with you on on all, everything we talked about today i have two questions that i'm going to ask on behalf of the audience um who are largely comprised of of uh you know uh marketers and and people who have appreciated a lot of the insights that you're able to provide um, one of those questions is, do you have any tools that you'd recommend marketers or strategists check out um, that they can utilize in their market research um, that you can recommend? Ooh, not specifically, because I think the next uh, six months to a year is really the advancement of hmm. some people call them private AI networks. So 
Hmm. For example, in our business, you know, we do 3,000 projects a year. That means 3,000 questionnaires are developed in a given year. If we could plunk that into an AI model that would learn, iteratively learn as we're designing those, theoretically in six months or less, we can, we'd never have to write a questionnaire again. The AI model can do that. But privacy issues prevent us from that. We can't just throw everything to chat GPT. So there's just hundreds and hundreds of small companies. So rather than say that there's a particular one that works, I'd say that's the that's the wave of the next the future for the next six months to 12 months is finding those little micro companies that are able to take advantage of the AI technology, but do it in a way that's very targeted to specific industries. That's the that's where the advancements really going to occur. So in an agency business, as you're used to, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to have advancements of companies popping up that are able to uh, that are able to do creative, creative design in a, in an AI platform that is private, so you don't have your work and your clients shared work outside and, and shared. So yeah. that's the I think the biggest advancement that we'll see in the next six months. So as a marketer, I'd look for those and look for those quickly. I, I haven't even thought about private AI networks till you mentioned it right there. That is, oh man, my mind's going in, in a bunch of different directions right now. I'll stick to the question though. Um, my next question um, for, for our audience is, uh, you've mentioned this several times throughout our chat, which is like the importance of asking the right question. Um, can you give any advice on, on uh, you know, a, an approach to crafting the right question to ask if you're trying to gain an insight? I know that's a big general question, but uh, this is the man, you're the man of question asking. Yeah, I would say probably the biggest mistake that marketers make is they'll come to us and they'll say, here's the questions that we have that we want to ask. And whether mm -hmm. it's a, the, the general public or in your industry, it might be, let's look at, I don't know, car buyers or people who purchase a certain product or service. Let's ask these questions because this is what I think we need to know. And I find the best starting point is is coming up with the objectives and saying what do you what decisions are you going to make based on the outcomes of the research and let the professionals craft the the questions. So there's no real magic bullet at this point other than absolutely the way you frame a question can can uh, bias the outcome. And you see it all the time with special interest mm -hmm. polls, you know, have special interest groups that will commission a poll and release it. And it's very subtle, but you can see the nuances of bias that go in those questions. And I think it's our job as professionals to make sure that clients get the the best information that is the most objective that answers their uh, answers their objectives as opposed to just their questions. I need to, I should have been taking notes this whole time for myself. <laughs> um, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having an open mind and answering some of my questions. Um, your background is, is definitely one of the most unique uh, that I've ever interviewed on Marketing News Canada. And I'm going to take a lot of what you said here to heart and do some research on some of these uh, these private AI networks that you've just talked about. Um, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you so much, Daryl. It was like we were sharing a bourbon and just swapping stories. It didn't feel like an interview at all. So I hope the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Take care. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded at the Jelly Marketing Studio. Thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editor, Travis Jeffers. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.